There were sons of Manasseh who actually were specializing in war. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hemmer. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are going to the Bible for the 32nd time. And it is exciting. We're learning a lot when we read from the law and Joshua and all the rest of it. So join us. Now, Corey is here with Ryan. Corey, what's up? I'm going to be taking a look at a really interesting city that the Bible highlights here in the time period of the conquest, right? Well, the Israelites under Joshua finally take possession of the promised land. But the question is, is this the Lord's rest that the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about? We'll talk about it. A very interesting day as we study this uh, for the next half hour. Join us. Janice, what would you do? Today I'm going to talk about sons of God. All right, so get out your Bible guide, turn to today's passage, and get your Bible out. This is the most important book ever, and let's continue on as we go through the Bible and learn what God is saying to us right now. Joshua 17, verses 1 through 13. There was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for Maker the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. Therefore he was given Gilead and Bashan. And there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh according to their families. For the children of Abiezar, the children of Helak, the children of Asriel, the children of Shechem, the children of Hefer, and the children of Shemida. These were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. But Zelephahed, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. And they came near before Eleazar the priest, before Joshua the son of Nun, and before the rulers, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. Ten shares fell to Manasseh, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons, and the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead. And the territory of Manasseh was from Asher to Michmatha, that lies east of Shechem, and the border went along south to the inhabitants of Entapua. Manasseh had the land of Tapua, but Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the children of Ephraim. And the border descended to the brook Cana, southward to the brook. These cities of Ephraim are among the cities of Manasseh. The border of Manasseh was on the north side of the brook, and it ended at the sea. Southward it was Ephraim's, northward it was Manasseh's, and the sea was its border. Manasseh's territory was adjoining Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. 
and in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Beth Shean and its towns, Ibliam and its towns, the inhabitants of Dor and its towns, the inhabitants of Endor and its towns, the inhabitants of Teanach and its towns, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its towns, three hilly regions. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened, when the children of Israel grew strong, that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Joshua chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Joshua chapter 16 to 18. This is absolutely stunning as we read it. Now Manasseh as a group of people was one of the tribes of Israel who were descendants of the man Manasseh, who was the firstborn son of Joseph. Now Manasseh the man was treated as an adopted son of his grandfather Jacob when Jacob gave his final blessing to the children back in Genesis 48 verse 5. Although Manasseh was Joseph's firstborn son, he was set behind his younger brother Ephraim. Now Jacob had purposely made that distinction by blessing them in the order that he had in his heart, according to Genesis chapter 48, verses 19 to 20. Now in the first 13 verses of Joshua 17, the people of East Manasseh inherited the land east of the Jordan River while those who were in what was called the West were settled into the promised land. Now, this is very important because the property of the ancient Israel that has been established since 1948 continues to be restored and established today. That's why Israel, a biblical name given by God, is so dominant in the news today. That's true. When you think about it, it's absolutely true. When you understand that Israel is a name given by God, it makes a lot of sense that things are uh, stirred up in today's world. And we have a lot going on in Israel. Let me tell you, it's very, very interesting. Take your Bible guide and turn to today's passage. If you don't have one, then you can write to us or call us or go to Bible Discovery TV and get a hold of yours. Thank you for your donations. They mean so much to us. Thank you for giving and being a part as we read through the Bible and learn every bit of every inch of the way something that God has spoken to us. Today, ancient Israel, Joshua 17, let's pray and ask the Lord to teach us his way and show us his path. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that we would listen to you that we would hear you, what you've said here, and we would apply it to our hearts, Lord. And so we're willing and we're ready to learn today. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, here's what the Bible says in the book of Joshua chapter 17. It says, There was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for McIntyre, the or Macter, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. Therefore, he was given Gilead and 
Bashan. And there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. For the children of Abizir, the children of Helek, and the children of Azrael, the children of Shechem, and the children of Hefer, and the children of Shemidah, these were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. Okay, this is important. Now pay attention. There were sons of Manasseh who specialized in war. Keep that in mind. They were good fighters. They specialized in it. And God designs and equips us according to his calling for our lives. God has for every individual on this planet a calling for us. And as we come into agreement with God, take him as our Lord and Savior, then we begin to understand, yes, God has a calling. And when we get into his callings, there are different people highlighted for different ways. And that's how the kingdom of God works. That's how it's set up. Some may be highlighted in speaking. Others may be highlighted in preaching. Others may be highlighted in doing things, in helping people. But everybody is highlighted in something very unique. Now that becomes very important as we continue on reading in the scripture. Chapter 17, verse 3 says, But Zelophehad had son, a son or the son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, but he only had daughters. And these are the names of his daughters. Mahalah. Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they came near before Eleazar the priest, before Joshua the son of Nun, and before the rulers, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. Ten shares fell to Manasseh beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which were on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons, and the rest of Manasseh's sons had in the, or had the land of Gilead. Now, this is really important. Listen to this, something we need to pay attention to. Zelophehad had no sons, but he had daughters, and they were given an inheritance. They were. Now, that makes it clear that gender does not interfere with God's calling. Did you get that? Gender is not on God's mind. All of us are sons of God. I know that's hard to understand, but it's true. And God has placed us in his kingdom so that we will fulfill what he has called us to do if we come and invite Jesus Christ into our life and take him as Lord of our life. That's very important. So keep that in mind. A lot of people are arguing over they said, he said, we said, she said. No, God says gender's not the issue here. That's very important. All right, let's go back to chapter 17, verse 7. And the territory of Manasseh was from Asher to Mechmethath, that lies east of Shechem. The border went along south to the inhabitants of Entapia, or Tapua, and Manasseh had the land of Tapua, but Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the children of Ephraim. And the border descended to the brook Cana, southward to the brook. 
These cities of Ephraim are among the cities of Manasseh. The border of Manasseh was on the north side of the brook, and it ended in the sea. Southward it was Ephraim's, north, northward it was Manasseh's, and the sea was its border. Now Manasseh's territory was adjoining Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. And in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Beth Sheen and its towns, Iblim and its towns, and the inhabitants of Dor and its towns, and the inhabitants of Endor and its towns, the inhabitants of Tanakh and its towns, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its towns, three hilly regions. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not, did not utterly drive them out, which brings me to the last point that we need to pay attention to. Manasseh was strong in war, yet weak in the knowledge of God. Strong in war, yet weak in the knowledge of God and could not defeat the Canaanites. Beloved, we must learn how to fight spiritually in order to succeed. Very important that we pay attention to that. Let's learn from God. Hi, Rod Hembry. We go through the Bible in one year. It's exciting. It's great. And you can join us by searching Bible Discovery TV on your phone. That's right, on your phone, your iPhone or your Android phone. And when you do so, you'll find the app. You can download the app and watch it anytime you want. Never miss a program right here on Bible Discovery TV. We'll see you there. Well, it's time now to carry on with our Bible study, and it's in the book of Joshua that we finally see the Israelites take possession of the land that God had promised them. And what's interesting is that when we get to the New Testament book of Hebrews, the unidentified writer actually refers to Joshua's conquest and the rest the people finally had. And Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 make many references to entering into the Lord's rest. But just what does it mean to enter the Lord's rest? Was this fulfilled in the time of Joshua? Well, let's study. In Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, the writer's overarching theme is entering the Lord's rest, which he makes mention of several times. But just what exactly is the theological definition of the Lord's rest according to Hebrews? The unidentified author builds his theology using other key scriptures. As a matter of fact, we see this in the very first mention of God's rest in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 which is actually a quote from Psalm 95, 7-11. In these verses, the psalmist is also looking back to Numbers 14, where God denies the wilderness-wandering Israelites entry into his rest because of their unbelief. In the immediate context of Numbers 14, and in that present situation as it related to the Israelites, this rest referred to the inhabitation of the Promised Land, which included peace, safety, and security all around, with God's presence in their midst. However, a major point David is making in Psalm 95 is that this rest was still available in his time, meaning that the entrance into the Promised Land could not have been entrance into the ultimate rest of God. Likewise, the writer of Hebrews, by quoting Psalm 95, makes the point that God's promise of entering his rest still stands today. 
Thus, the rest offered to the desert dwellers in Numbers 14 was a promise much greater than just real estate. As Hebrews says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So if this wasn't God's ultimate rest, then what is? To answer that important question, it is imperative to understand the greater context of Psalm 95. While the immediate context of verses 7-11 to was God's rejection of the unbelieving Israelites, the psalm as a whole is about God's right to rule as king because he is creator of everything. This contextual key regarding God as creator is critical to understanding what the Lord's rest truly is, and the writer of Hebrews builds on this by expanding his biblical theological base even farther to include yet another foundational passage of scripture, Genesis chapter 2. It's fitting that Hebrews reaches back to the very origins of the heavens and earth for the origin and definition of God's rest. As Genesis explains, God created everything in six days, and then on the seventh day he rested from all his works and sanctified it as a Sabbath rest. This Edenic state, then, is the very definition of God's ultimate rest according to Hebrews and the rest of Scripture. Although mankind was initially created into that perfect rest, our fall into sin spoiled that. Nevertheless, since that time, God in his great love, mercy, and grace has been working through Jesus Christ to bring us back into that rest, which will be a restoration of that perfect Edenic state. Thus, the rest offered in Numbers 14 and Psalm 95 was only partial, as it previewed and prefigured the ultimate rest in God to come, which was inaugurated through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, God still offers us this coming rest today for anyone who believes in his redemptive work through the person of Jesus Christ. So, entering the Lord's rest ultimately refers to the restoration of the Edenic state before the fall of mankind. It's the complete renewal of the heavens and the earth, the new creation. And even though that rest is still yet in the future, for those obedient and faithful to the Lord, Christians, like the Israelites under Joshua, get to enjoy a partial rest right now. Because as soon as one puts his or her faith and trust in God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ, he or she immediately enjoys a rest of conscience because they know that they will never be brought into judgment for their sins. And then later, Christians will enter the Lord's ultimate rest when he restores all things. But unbelievers beware. Rebellion and disobedience will result in rejection from the Lord's rest, just like it did for those to whom it was first preached. Turn your life over to Christ today if you haven't already. Come and enter the Lord's rest. Enter the Lord's rest through Jesus Christ. Very important. Let's uh, talk about that further in just a moment. Corey? All right. Well, we've been reading through Joshua. So we've seen several of the key battles that took place when the Israelites first marched into the promised land and, and began to conquer. Uh, and in some cases, didn't conquer enough. Uh, so today we're going to be focusing in on this really interesting site of Shechem, because if you'll remember back in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses actually commanded Joshua and the Israelites to uh, do a covenant renewal ceremony on the two mountains that flanked the city of Shechem. Shechem has a really interesting biblical history, so let's take a look at it. With 60 mentions from the pages of the Old Testament of the Bible, the city of Shechem ranks among the most important cities of the historic land of Israel. 
Located in Israel's central hill country and at the division of a major road, Shechem was flanked by the two tallest mountains in the area, Mount Abal to the north and Mount Gerizim to the south. Its arrangement in this narrow valley pass likely accounts for its name, which in Hebrew means back or shoulder. Today, Shechem has been identified as Tel Balada in the modern city of Nablus and has been the focus of much archaeological survey and excavation. Shechem's first mention in the Bible comes from Genesis 12 as the place where Abram received a promise from a god that the land of Canaan would one day belong to his descendants. Abram then built an altar at Shechem. Noticeably absent in this report is a fortified city further explained by archaeological work which tells us that Shechem wasn't fortified until just before Abram's grandson Jacob visited. Jacob's visit saw him camping in front of the fortified city, purchasing a plot of land, and building another altar to God. Later in biblical history, at the command of Moses, Joshua read the book of the law to the Israelites at Shechem, standing on Mount Ebal, which even today acts as a natural amphitheater. Shechem was then made a Levitical city of refuge, and after another covenant renewal ceremony, the bones of Joseph brought out of Egypt were laid to rest there. In the time period of the judges, Gideon's son Abimelech had himself named king, by force, at Shechem, and ended up murdering around a thousand Shechemites for betraying him, and then destroying the city. During the time period of the kings, Jeroboam I rebuilt Shechem as the capital city of northern Israel. And by the time of Christ, ancient Shechem had been in ruins since the Assyrian invasion of northern Israel. And the ruins of a Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim were still visible from Jacob's well, where Jesus famously claimed to be the Messiah. There is still more to learn about the city of Shechem. So on tomorrow's program, we're going to take a look at uh, what we sometimes refer to as the problem or the puzzle of Shechem, especially how it relates here to the time period of the conquest of the promised land. So lots more to discussion to be had, but it's exciting. So yeah, hopefully it, you can join us tomorrow. It really is. Uh, and and when, when we discover these things, it's important to remember that this is all part of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I find that fascinating. So thank you very much. Janice? Well, I titled this Sons of God because we are hearing about the daughters of Zelophehad again in this chapter 17 of Joshua, where the land is being given over to the different tribes. And of course, Zelophehad, we first learn about this man and his daughters in Numbers chapter 26, verse 33, uh, during the second census of Israel. Now, Zelophehad had daughters, but no sons. And so that typically meant that any of the inheritance would go nowhere. It, it, it went to uh, a slave or somebody else in line and not to the daughters. But the daughters of Zelophehad came to Moses at that time and asked what would happen because their father had no sons. You can read about that, which we've already gone through. But if you're just joining us now in Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, that talk about the inheritance laws and how God's spoke to Moses because of the daughters of Zelophehad. Now in Numbers chapter 36, it talks about what happens when those daughters get married, because of course that would um, possibly 
interfere with the inheritance of the land that the daughters had. So it's a very, very interesting section to see the laws of God and also versus how God demonstrated His personality and a foreshadowing of the future through the daughters of Zelophehad. Now, what I want to talk about today is that these girls did receive an inheritance. And when they got married, they were to, as the scripture says, they can marry whom they think best, but only within the family of their father's tribe. So in this way, the land still belonged to the ultimate tribe that it was allotted to in the first place. Now, they received their inheritance as any son would. And in Galatians chapter 3, in the New Testament, verses 26 through 28, we hear this. These are for people who are followers of Christ. We have given ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are called Christians. We are people of the way. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Did you hear that first line? For you are all sons of God. There have been movements in the last while, Rod, of, of women feeling um, badly or demeaned if everything is always referred to as sons. In this verse, to me as a woman, knowing that I have an, an inheritance, that I am the same, that we are all the same in Christ Jesus, there's neither slave nor free. He doesn't see color. God doesn't see gender in that way. We are all equal because of the work of Christ Jesus. And because of that, we all have an inheritance that he has given us. What is that? Eternal life through Jesus Christ and forgiveness of our sins. That's what we inherit as, as our sons of God and through what Jesus Christ has done. I think it's absolutely fascinating when you begin to understand that this is the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And in the Old Testament, I mean, the first five heroes are women. I mean, in, in Judges chapter four, you've got Deborah. She's somebody who's a, a woman. You got Sisera. She's somebody who's a, and, and the Bible is clear on that. So it's fascinating. God is the great equalizer. As we finish today, we need to remember the last point. God will teach us how to strategically do battle in the spiritual realm. And that's something we need to pay attention to. So let's learn that from the Lord. In fact, let's pray today. Lord, help me to be ready and to do what you have called me to do, Lord. 
Jesus' name. This is what we ask, Lord, to help us to see that. We all said together, amen. Now let's pay attention to what the Lord speaks to us. 